see you again. You too. Welcome to uh, another Time Team chat. Um, I wanted to dig a bit deeper. Um, okay, now we're going to tr transfer ourselves into the civilized life of a Roman villa. But I remember reading somewhere how important the city life was to a Roman, that for a Roman, um, the city life represented civilization. Um, and so it's our guess that many of the owners of these wonderful villas in Oxfordshire and the Cotswolds regularly went into, say, Sirencester um, to experience the life there, the amphitheater. Well, I don't, I know, I know a lot of people have been saying this, but I did finally look up the distance to Sirencester and it's 40 miles. That's not a day's journey, a two days journey, two days quite a hefty journey. And, and, I would have thought that Sirencester would be a, I think we've got to look for, a, for, for I think, yes, I'm, the, the phrase making your own entertainment keeps springing to mind. I, I'm, I would be interested in confirming those links. Uh, how can we do that? Can we do that through pottery? Can we do that through other products? Can we do that through animal bones? How can we confirm a link? Well, the obvious story is the Sirencester School of Mosaicists. Oh, yes. If mosaicist is a, is a thing. Um, here we've got, um, we know that um, various tessera have turned up on the site. Um, and if you've got a mosaic there, I mean, it merely shows that a group of workmen were willing to, to cover the distance and, and it was worth the, 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 the journey. Um, but when you think that at Woodchester, we've got one of the biggest mosaics in Northern Europe with the Orpheus theme in it. Uh, North Lee had beautiful mosaics. I think it would be true to say that the presence of a mosaic tells you a lot more than just the pretty pictures you might end up looking at. Um, were you able to see them? Yes. Uh, and it would be interesting to find out whether it's not just the um, the craftsmen, but also the materials that might be coming um, coming from from the southwest. But I would also, I think, if you were Guy and you were saying this kind of stuff to me, I might well say, "Oh, Guy, come on! What you're doing is you're you're looking at the first and second centuries when you've got writing, when you've got um, classical authors telling us how important the." the city is and they're telling us how important the Mediterranean city is. What we should be doing is taking our evidence on its own terms. We've got archaeology of Britain probably in the third and fourth centuries. Isn't it different? I mean we can't just always keep going on about the classics you learned at university. You know this is a different time and a different place. So, yeah. so it's a good hypothesis but I'm I'm afraid I'm going to be battling to, to show that you've got to prove it or you've got to, I'm going to be trying to show it, it's wrong. You've got, to, you've got to hang on to that hypothesis and I'll be trying to disprove it. I read in an English heritage text, a rather nice statement that went something like, um, the quality of some of the late Roman villas in Britain have the, the, the range of cultural influence and skills that would, be found equal in Roman villas in Italy of the same period, mm -hmm. which is I'm, quite a... Yes, yeah. I'm quite prepared to believe that throughout the empire at this stage, there might be a, 
um, a, a rural elite who all mingle about. I mean, I'm not saying that, that people at Broughton are likely to be insular and tucked into their corner of Oxfordshire and never going anywhere. But what I'm saying perhaps is that um, their power base is the countryside, maybe. And they might deal with other major landowners and who recommend them as hair cysts and perhaps their roofers and whatever, you know, and their jewelers and so on. And they're moving at that level, but then they're, they're moving at a level of um, of rural elite rather than urban elite. So if you've got Romans being an urban elite in the first century, um, rather like you've got people being an urban elite at the moment, that's different to how people were, say, in the Victorian period when status and wealth came from land. And so your your peers, uh, if you were, say, a Leicestershire landowner in 1880, might actually be a Prussian landowner um, rather than somebody in the cities of London and Berlin. Um, that, that, that may not, they may have simply been the generators of the wealth, maybe in the 19th century, but they're not necessarily where you express your wealth and where, where, you're, where you feel like your people are, if you see what I mean. And I think it's very easy for us to write off rural areas at the moment, as I live in one with no cities, we have no cities in, in my county, uh, I'm going to fight for the, for the, for the rural elite. Um, can I just ask you this? Um, my memories of Time Team's mosaics um, were that we had a few rather wonderful Dinnington, um, various Cobbly. other places. Cob Cobbly uh, had the Caduceus, was it? Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, that kind, that, that, that kind of suddenly coming across the culture of a previous time. Because in some ways, mosaics are relatively mundane things. They're a kind of a flaw. We had carpets, they had mosaics. But I think mosaics played more of a role in the life of a villa owner than just a suitable covering for his floor. Um, what, what do you think we can draw from them? I think that we need to try to remember, uh, when we look at a mosaic, it's quite tempting to see it in in modern, uh, when I say modern terms, I suppose I mean neoclassical 18th, 19th, 20th century terms um, and say, oh, well, you know, look, isn't it beautiful? Haven't they got that interesting pattern and so on and so forth. It's really difficult to remember that these people who liked to see these patterns as we did and who liked the feel of them on their feet like we do and so on, they were from a completely different culture with completely different norms. So the trick of seeing the mosaics afresh and anew through that those foreign eyes is not an easy one and that's why I think you do need people like like David Neal who have absolutely been steeped in them for so long and, ha and have all those cultural references they know what the guillosh means they know what the caduceus means and so on and so forth uh, or they can have a, an educated guess at it uh, whereas the rest of us tend to look at it uh, and say oh isn't that nice you know um the the what they're alluding to these these ideas of mythology uh, and and semi-legendary history they ha they come with a whole package of knowledge um which which you have to i, I think it's rare for even to be an, a roman archaeologist and understand that you need to be a proper classicist with the literature behind you with the 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 art of many areas not just the mosaics 
and with the knowledge of um, I mean the, the, it's such an unparalleled resource to have all that uh, all those laws and all those plays and all that poetry and all those stories um, that we don't have at any other period right up until perhaps the 18th century so so you have to bring all of that so I would like before before I uh, came to a conclusion as to what any of these mosaics mean I would like David Neal, Natalie Haynes, uh, Mary Beard, you know, that kind of person. I, I'm not going to do what I often am guilty of and shove out the text-based people in this situation to understand what it means in a detailed sense. You need the thought as well as the material culture. Reminds me, uh, you talking about David. I remember when we were with him on a site and, and we were looking, I think he was in the state of preparing one of his great books, tomes of these wonderful painted copies of mosaics and, and him turning to some pages where part of the mosaic had been kind of ripped across by a plow, part of it had deteriorated. And I, I, I said to him, it's difficult, isn't it? Because we have examples in Britain of of mosaics we know about, but they're just covered over, not seen like the Woodchester one. Um, and he said, if, if, if you don't record them, if you don't find something out about them, they may not be there in 10, 15 years time, climate change, yeah. weather, soil erosion, um, the, the, the natural weathering of sites can actually end up damaging these. And it's important if you know it's there to try and record it. And yet there's also a slightly sort of preservation in situ argument as well. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I've never had much truck with that idea, I'm afraid. I can, I can see how it works in theory that our techniques are now much better than they were 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Wouldn't it be nice if we could excavate some really amazing sites that were done in, say, the 20s, in, in, I mean, the 1920s, to these, to these um, standards of the 2020s? Well, yes, it would, but I can't see that necessarily happening. You know, um, first of all, if, you, if you've already encountered it, you have disturbed it. If you know it's there, then you have, you, you have disturbed it. Uh, possibly a very few things like with ground penetrating radar can get so deep that maybe you haven't but almost everything else even aerial photographs you know those are sites that are eroding into the plow soil metal detecting sites that are eroding into the plow soil um if you if you put piles into a a, a waterlogged town like in york you're introducing um your drainage and, and oxygen into those layers it, it's just we just don't know enough about the future to know whether we th the stuff is going to stay stable. The other thing that worries me is we don't know enough about the future to know if anybody's going to be interested. And what we're interested in and how we interpret things changes all the time. And that's one of the things that I, I love about archeology span that is actually what we choose to investigate tells us more about ourselves than it does about the past. I, that, that's, that's one of the things I just, I, I think is so revealing. Um, so because we can't predict the future, I think it's got these two problems. What, what, who's to say anybody will be interested and who's to say it will still be there? I, I think strike while the iron's hot, the bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, so on and so forth. And just out of interest, where, where do we stand with the idea that um, there's also an important role 
for showing the audience, showing gen the general public those things which so many archaeologists have loved to find in their past careers. It seems to me there's quite a few archaeologists there who, when they were young and in their youths and in the golden days and all the rest of it, were off on foreign sites, scraping away at the surface of various mosaics, plastered walls, all the rest of it. As they get older, they get gradually more conservative. Um, but there seems to me that there is an element of the, of the public's right to know about some of those things which are both useful and beautiful. Do we remember the beautiful more than the useful discuss? Yes, yes, we, we probably do. You're probably right. And of course, that's, that's another really good point that if we don't dig things up, if we don't find things, if we don't make new discoveries and have new excitements, then why should the public pay for, for looking after all this stuff when they're not getting any benefit from it? And that's something that I think a lot of people forget, especially in these days of developer-funded archaeology. They somehow think that archaeology is paid for by other people. It's not. It's paid for by you. It's paid for by all of us. If, if there was no public will to pay for it through, I mean, essentially, uh, it's paid for by rising house prices, some of it. Developers make more money and they can afford to, and we force them to spend some of it on archaeology. But it's not exactly their money. It doesn't come out of their profits. It, it, of course, it's just passed on to the rest of us. So we, if we want to carry on finding out about the past, we've got to make it interesting and exciting. And this, again, I don't want to get into a row with any classicists, but again, thinking of something that Guy always has, has said, archaeology is so much better than history because you, it, it, once we go back to the Roman period, because you're almost vanishingly unlikely to find any new Roman history, whereas new Roman archaeology is popping up all the time. But imagine if it didn't. Imagine if we just had to sit with these old sites, picking over them over and over again. How, how dull it would be. We need to find new stuff. We need, because we're now interested in all sorts of different things, like what's around the outside of a villa? What's the landscape like? We're interested in, I mean, people used to throw away human bones. Now we find them the most exciting bit of the site. So we can't stop, you know, we can't just, we can't put it all off to this mythical future when, well, how would the techniques get better if we're not practicing anyway? You know, it just doesn't work. There's so many logical inconsistencies. And I'm, a, I'm reminded, I suppose, as well, it just occurs to me of, of the great cues of archaeology. And what I mean by that is the Tutankhamun ex exhibition. Oh, yeah. Sutton, the... The, 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 um, the, the Staffordshire Horde was an amazing... Staffordshire Horde. Yeah. People a week or something queued up to see and hopefully help to pay for future archaeology because of the thrill. It doesn't always have to be the shiny and gold. It can be a beautiful object, a beautiful thing. Yes, the, say the, the Temple of Mithras in London, that was another famous queue. But sometimes it's almost perverse that the beauty of a thing can sort of push archaeologists back into some sort of rather conservative huffiness about the fact that, you know, oh, it's beautiful and, and it's just beauty, you know. Yeah, um, it's so not much... really real in some way. It's not, it's, it's rather like, um, like, almost like the Duke of Westminster is not really real or, the, or, or, or Prince Charles is not really real, you know, that real people are, are, are in some way different. 
and and I I I I can understand that sentiment. I think a lot of people think that that the the shiny object, the rich person, the they're they're well covered by history, and archaeology exists to look at the forgotten and the untold. That's true, but also some of these beautiful objects they may not be very useful but they've they've had a lot of investment they've had a lot of thought put into them they've had a lot of their little pieces of advertising and we need to be able to decode that advertising to see what messages people were trying to send i mean if you look at the crown jewels i just i i really love the crown jewels the messages they're trying to send they're pretty good at them they they are they're perhaps not comfortable messages but they are very strongly expressed and, and they, they, they do it so well. I mean, you may not want to hear the message, but it's there anyway. And I can't imagine anything that would get us inside the mind of the owner more than seeing what he chose mm. and the quality of the workmanship he decided to pay for to express a message that every visitor because a lot of these mosaics are in the entrance hall. It's, it's like a grand receiving hall. If you walk in, you walk in through the front door and there in front of you is this mosaic statement of good taste, understanding, classical illusion. You know, I'm a man who knows about the Orpheus or I know about various other legends. And it's rather like laying my um, you know, CV on the ground in front of you to tread over on your way in to have a glass of wine. Yes, in exactly the same way as an 18th century aristocrat would, would put pictures on the walls. Yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, they, 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 I think that I would, I think that the difference between pictures and the mosaic is you have to live in that room as well. Where's the furniture going? What are they doing? in that room and one of the things that really bugs me um, about Roman buildings is okay some of them have a hypercourse without a hypercourse how is anybody living in this chilly island uh, with all that amazing plaster on the walls and mosaics on the floor uh, you can't put a smoky fire in there you're not heating it through central heating what's going on and people think people the... vaguely say braziers to me, but I, I would like to do some experiments to see how smokeless a brazier is. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. And a final little note, which is a Cornish connection with Roman wall plaster. Wall plaster used all kinds of chemicals to create the, the colours, hematite for red and things like this, Egyptian blue. One of the difficulties was getting it to stick to the plaster itself. And somewhere in antiquity, they discovered that a coat of kaolin added to the plaster absolutely glued the colours to the wall, which came from Cornish sites, uh, kaolin sites. Yes, yes. <laughs> ah, well, I didn't know that. And how can we use that in any way? Can we? Can we analyze how much kaolin, you know, there must be, I want to get the, I want to get the bean counters onto it. I want to find out what, what that means in terms of stuff flowing out that will need stuff flowing in. Wonderful. Helen, thank you very much for your time. Uh, and I hope you have a, a wonderful uh, break at the moment if you get a chance to, and, and very nice to talk to you. And I look forward to catching up you, with you again. Me too. Been lovely to see you, Tim. Bye. Bye.
We can't do any of this work without you. So please subscribe, back us on Patreon, and make sure that Time Team comes back again.